you have a best-selling product, right? You know for a fact that this product is generating 70% of the revenue. I would suggest you to just cut everything else. Like literally just remove everything else from the store. Just sell those products. And so you might be thinking, okay, this uh, reduces selection for my customer and stuff. That's actually the wrong way to go because actually most of your revenue is being driven by one thing. So focus on the one thing and just try to scale that as much as possible and scale uh, very, very aggressively. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Jonathan Ung of Singapore adds another unique set of views to the ongoing conversations we share in on Ecomotics, a Debutify podcast. Jonathan has blended a distinct set of experiences, including military service, reality warping photography, and of course, his highly successful media marketing agency, OXG Media, built to take on the most competitive of clients. Among the many insights that impressed me, I was especially taken by his view of finding the right angle to market a product, and that it's up to you, the seller, to make a winner happen. Jonathan Ung, welcome to Ecomotics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm fine. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joseph, for inviting me to the podcast. Uh, pleasure to be here. It's it's a pleasure to have you here. It, yeah, it really it really is good to have you. And I, I looked into your, your your agency. I always try to look into what our what our guests do before we talk to them. And I want to give our listeners a little bit of a heads up because uh, one of the things we always look forward to is actually learning something that might either you know, conflict or run into contrast with uh, some of the other stuff that we learned too, because we always want to get uh, multiple views on it. So foreshadowing, Jonathan's agency here doesn't uh, work with drop shippers, but we'll get to that. So we're just gonna we're just gonna put a pin in that just for now. I got a very important question for you, John. Tell us who you are and what do you do. So hi, I'm Jonathan. Uh, I run an agency. We run paid traffic for e-commerce brands. Uh, paid traffic, uh, predominantly Facebook and Google, because they're the biggest traffic sources. Uh, we just help scale mm-hmm. e-commerce brands. So uh, as long as you are uh, doing certain amount of revenue uh, and you have a product and offer that works, we can help you scale up uh, very, very fast as well. Uh, so I guess our specialty is the combination of uh, CRO, uh, very good video creatives, and scale at the same time. So our media buying plus creative plus angles and stuff are very good. And that's why we can uh, scale very hard, very fast as well. Have you heard of the um, of the value triangle? I don't actually know if it's called that, but it's... It, it, it's more of like a, it's like kind of like a meme more than anything where somebody says, well, if you want something good and fast, it's not going to be cheap. If you want something cheap and good, it's not going to be fast. And if you want something good and fast, it's not, oh, I think I've already said that one. Well, you get, you get the idea, right? Put the last pieces together in your head. So you guys, you, you scale quickly. Um, so you, so you cover the, the speed part of it. And, uh, and I imagine that, you know, you, you, you charge what is, uh, what is, what is correct. And then you also do good quality too. So you find a really good balance between all three of these. And I'm just wondering what, uh, what in, went into making sure that, you know, you were getting compensated well for doing good quality work and doing it in a short amount of time. Yep. Understood. So we generally charge, uh, for example, like a retainer fee and then we charge a percentage of ad spend. Uh, normally clients, cause they're very protective of, Hey, I, I can't charge percentage of revenue or percentage of profit because they own the entire business. So a percentage of ad spend is much easier uh, to actually charge. And obviously, for example, if you spend 100K and we take a percentage of that, that means you're probably making three to 400K a month. So uh, the retainer and plus percentage is a very uh, small drop of value compared to what we charge as well. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's as as the pool expands uh, in, and then of that percentage becomes a higher percentage, then they can see the increase of that, and uh, and it's consistent in, in sort of like the expectations of it. So yeah, that makes sense. So what were you up to um, prior to this? We would, we wanted to hear about like how you you got into this industry, and you know what skills were developing with you as you as you made your way into what you're doing today. Sure. Uh, so I was uh, in the army. So I'm, I live in Singapore. Oh, wow. So- I didn't even know that. I was trying to find <laughs> out, but I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like everybody uh, who's a male goes through enlistment. So it's a compulsory uh, military service. And so when oh, okay. I was back in the military, I was like not really learning actual skills, I felt. So I, I picked up photography and videography on the weekends. So the precious weekends, I just picked that up. And mm-hmm. then that transitioned into like uh, freelance jobs and stuff. So I, in a sense, I mastered photo and video, uh, went into that scene. And then one of the days, uh, like I had an email come in like a digital agency say, hey, we need some video work right here. And so when, when I saw that, then I saw I saw the opportunity to go into like D2C consumer brands and e-commerce as well. And so this opened up an entirely new world from content creation to, um, how do I say this? To pay advertising, to to marketing and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't know that world, but I went to learn into that world. Uh, so I actually picked up dropshipping along the way as well. And so that's why everybody on the Debutify audience, I kind of understand what you're going through if you're dropshipping. Um, yeah, so I was dropshipping but I just be frank as well. I also failed because I actually, I, I did drop shipping the wrong way. I bought inventory first and then I went to uh, run traffic. But instead, you should actually sell first and then you go and go get your inventory. I did it the opposite. And so like as a first time mm-hmm. entrepreneur, um, I put money down first and basically I failed at that. So because I did, I was not managed, I didn't manage to sell the product before I, you know, uh, and now I think in China somewhere, <laughs> there's like uh, 2000 sunglasses just sitting, uh, just unsold. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess that's my first business venture. And so, I mean, like as, as a young kid without money, right? Like mm-hmm. what, what can you do? You can exchange time for money. And that's how I got into the agency and the service business model. Cause I took the skills and, um, the money that I lost, uh, from the dropshipping venture, I, uh, transitioned that into uh, like skill acquisition and I know how to run ads now, right? So I went to do that for, uh, companies in first Singapore, then now, uh, entirely in the U S as well. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I want to say is that I'm pretty sure there was a lot more than just 2,000 sunglasses, you know, sitting yeah. around unsold in China. I think at least like 3,000, uh, definitely along those lines. Yeah, so that's actually fascinating. I only know of two countries right now, now that you said uh, Singapore. Uh, I think it's Singapore and Israel, the only two that I know of where military service is compulsory. Um, so I just actually like, well, I don't want to spend like too much on this because, you know, this is an e-commerce podcast, but I do want to like just touch on this very briefly because um, not naming names, but I do have a friend of mine who like he was on the verge of joining the Canadian military to the point where like the box of the uniform showed up at his house uh, in advance of him driving to uh, to basic training. And he saw the uniform and it got like way too real for him. So he puts the uniform back and, he's, and he sends it back and he says, you know what, never mind. Uh, it, it's just too much. My question to you is about how really it feels to be in the military and how the world feels. I think I think it makes the world feel a lot more real just because there is like the knowledge that you know this job does entail danger uh versus how how reality feels you know leaving the military and getting to capture uh, doing photography uh which i've seen your instagram i know you've made comments about like the relationship between imagery and reality and versus the reality of what you're doing now yeah that's correct so you're asking me about what's my opinion on the military and how that um affects day-to-day life is that your question i'm really i'm really trying to die in on like you know what is, you know what is the feeling of like you know uh, uh, being in the military and how that particular uh, career path such as it is like just feels you know waking up every day um being uh, uh being part of the service versus you know how it feels being out of it and 
uh, how how does it how does it change your perception on reality? I mean, you yourself have not been in the military, but in Singapore, at least, it's very uh, it's almost like hell because they <laughs> they they bring you there for for two years and just regimented life, and so like they take away all your freedoms and stuff. And so to me, like civilian life is like easy mode because in the army mm-hmm. you wake up at five a.m. like you're expected to do everything, and uh, like no nothing's given to you. You know, can I curse on this podcast? Uh, so far, I think we have about eight. Uh, f bombs over the course of the entire show. Uh, so we, we're 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 for it, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, I guess make it count. Okay. So uh, yeah, there's just a, a lot of bad things happen to you, and it's very uh, arduous and uh, you know, mentally straining as well. In in mm-hmm. addition to the physical a- aspect of it, so I would say that um, military is not for everybody, and it just makes you much more grateful for civilian life. Um, Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that that checks out for sure. Okay, yeah, I, I just wanted to get uh, uh, get a quick t- touch on that too. It is it is interesting as you say, like military is not for everybody, and then the military basically gets everybody to enlist. So I guess it's just a way of I don't know. I mean, for me, like I remember going to like elementary school. I thought elementary school was hell, but uh, it's, it's definitely can't be the same. <laughs> so here's what I want to read from uh, OXG Media, uh, which is uh, we don't care about vanity metrics. Uh, we don't care about pretty websites. And you said in brackets, clearly, just look at this site. And now, fr- frankly, I did look at the website. I thought it looked all right. But, you know, I, I, see, I see where you're going with it. Uh, you know, because it's not like, it's not like an, a Wix site. You know, you see these YouTube ads and then it's, oh, look at this. It's so pretty. So in your experience, what are like the, the visual and aesthetic features that aren't pulling their weight? Because I would imagine that as good, the, the better a website looks, it's going to help out in some way, right? It's going to lead to conversion. It's going to do something. So uh, where, where are visuals actually maybe not really like, or where are visuals becoming redundant? I, I feel like uh, as long as you have a landing page that speaks to the customer with copy that speaks to the pain point, that like you can sell anything to anyone. That's my perspective on uh, like traffic and acquisition. So like, it doesn't matter how, how good your page looks. It's just more like, is it consistent? Is it coherent? And does it build trust enough for person to pull out your, their credit card to give you money so in terms of like hey you need a really fantastic website like a front-end developer come in and just um, improve everything i don't really agree with that i think it's more like hey can this uh, position can this product be positioned to solve the problem of, of the customer and if the person like trust that page enough they will still give them money no matter how uh, bad it looks that's how i feel well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's got to be like, a, you know, a threshold somewhere where a customer doesn't want to come to a website and feel like it's still like a GeoCity site from the 90s. And, uh, and there's like, you know, gifts and there's like hamsters dancing in the corner or something like that. Like there has to be like some standards just so that a website is, um, is trustworthy just upon uh, examination of it. So uh, can you speak to that? Would you say there's certain standards that a website should set? So um, I guess the easiest lowest hanging fruit is like a two-tone color scheme. So for example, mm-hmm. if it's orange and white, uh, purple and purple and white, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like as long as that's consistent and it shows that, hey, this is a real brand with like real brand colors, consistency, people trust things that are consistent, right? So I think that's uh, one. Then number two, in terms of visual elements, just trust badges are a very, very easy add-on to that as well. Yeah, I, I I think those things too. Um, if a website ends up having like six colors on there and they're all over the place, then yeah, it can be, uh, it, not only is it untrustworthy, but it can be confusing to look at. Um, you guys also did the um, e-com best practices fundamentals checklist. I, I definitely I think our listeners should uh, go have a look at this because I think it's a great, uh, basically like 
free accessible resource uh, just to keep in mind some things that we can use for improvement. And um, I, I, there's a couple to just to point out, there's, you know, are there customer reviews? Um, is the add to cart button extending the page with some stuff that like I wouldn't I wouldn't think of on my own. One of them is like, does if it's closed based, does it have a size guide? So what I like to know is two things about this. One, how did you determine what makes the cut, you know, what is uh, worthwhile of being on the list. And number two is, are there any like oddball or niche instructions or any ones that like people for the most part are caught off guard by, or there's tips that people just don't generally expect? Okay. So I guess uh, additional things that you could possibly add, right? Like oddball things. Um, So I think in terms of FAQ wise and product demonstration is what people miss out on, on. So in terms of product demonstration, how um, you show a product on video, um, I think product education is very important based on that. So mm-hmm. just putting smashing as much content, video content on the site as much as possible so that the person knows exactly what they're buying. So instead of just showing a product photo, uh, is there a product unboxing? Is there like uh, testimonials with like every single age group, every sing- single ethnicity, you know, showing that p- other people can, can use their product uh, as successful as you proclaim it to be? Uh, so mm-hmm. I think those are the things that people normally uh, neglect. In terms of like uh, industry standard, I'm pretty sure everyone knows the FAQs, um, photo galleries, uh, video testimonials, um, sizing guide, like you said, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think we're pretty much on the same page on that. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, one other thing I'll, I'll follow up on too regarding this is that some of what you're talking about is about getting the, the getting our audiences and getting our customers uh, social, getting them engaged. I guess for you in particular, uh, because the people you're working with have already uh, crossed quite a few milestones, and so they should have uh, a built-in audience. But um, any anything you can say to, I guess, more of like the up-and-comers, people starting up, of what are some ways that they can start getting their first audiences to convert and help out by providing these testimonials and uh, providing, uh, even if they want to do their own unboxing videos, stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. So. Um, if you are in a sense pre-revenue or uh, like struggling to scale, it just means that your product is not able to position itself to solve the problem. So how well, how I would see is just first focus on the copywriting, on cold traffic, on your top of funnel campaigns, and then get those profitable or break even first. So really understanding the customer persona and the segment and the pain points, and then just speak to that, speak to the benefit to the customer on the landing page. Then once you solve that, you generally can get up to uh, quite easily, I would say, five hundred to a thousand dollars in spend per day. Uh, then afterwards, you want to transition into getting testimonials and stuff. Uh, you definitely can reach out to many micro-influencers. So you can go to YouTube, for example, and uh, you sort by uh, view count or you sort by subscriber count. And then you see people who are, for example, less than 50,000 subscribers. You just send them free product. I know sometimes it's um, mm-hmm. it in the dropshipping sphere or uh, when you're bootstrapped, sometimes like uh, budget's tight. But if you send an influencer a uh, piece of product, right? And then you, they ask, they give you some content in, in exchange, right? That piece of content can produce you like hundreds of thousands of dollars in the next few months. So you definitely should see that as an investment, as an asset, right? Then you run that uh, throughout your entire marketing funnel. So from everything from uh, the landing page to your ads, to your email copy, to your email landing pages as well. So um, invest in content and naturally like returns will come over time. Yeah. And so uh, how I see it as well, sorry about that, um, is that your, your asset and your, like the content wise, is um, going to build over time, right? So your library and the resonance with the market will build over time. So you just have to keep like increasing that library. 
uh, and just produce more content over and over. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great point about the influencers because influencers are natural content creators. So if I send a product to an influencer, I could always just say, hey, just, you know, if you can do us a favor, make sure that, you know, you do an unboxing video um, and we will, because we, we do want to use this for, for our advertising. So I imagine it's important to be open and upfront with the influencers too about what we intend to do uh, with the content that they're going to make and what content we expect the influencer to make as well. That's correct. So you probably can give them a guide. So for example, if you're reaching out to them, you say that, hey, the other influencers that worked with us in the past or like you film a video with your own product, like showing them what you want so that you kind of shape what our video that they produce right. for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen, um, I, I don't know if this has ever come up, but have you ever seen like the, the persons running the store or selling the store use themselves as their influencer where like they do their own unboxing videos just to kind of like get some content on there? Yes, 100%. So even like one of my uh, students who came to me for coaching, yeah, he did that. So uh, yeah, if you can be the influencer, it's super, super easy purely because there's no cost to you at all. And like internet fame doesn't mean anything, right? So <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so if you if you can be the face of the brand and are not scared, like you actually have like real products with good shipping times. I actually think that you should be the face of the brand because it's easier for you to sell as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, like, internet fame doesn't mean anything. And I mean, there's quite a lot of people that are like, you know, popular on the internet, but for whatever reason, they just don't have that same pen, that same like household recognition. Uh, Whereas like, someone like Joe Rogan was like, he was famous before you know, he came to the internet. So it's, it's like a, it's like a melding pot between those two. Yeah. It just makes you think like somebody, somebody like you would have to be like PewDiePie just to like stand a chance to be recognized by like, you know, my parents or something like that. Like in terms of influencer wise, if, um, I feel that people really, uh, don't understand the difference between like followers and revenue. Like it doesn't mean you have a lot of followers means you have a lot of revenue. However, like the content creators that can produce like converting videos and content that generates into sales will really win at this game. So if you are a brand, an e-commerce brand, and like you want to reach out to, to those people, you can potentially go to the people who are not making money right now. And so that you kind of have like a uh, partner with them at a younger stage. And as they grow as well, then your brand grows so that you both, uh, you know, grow at the same time. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, that checks out. But I guess I have to wonder is like, how do you figure out whether or not an influencer is making money or not? I guess there's clues. Like if they're, <laughs> I, I guess if they're not in a big house and they're in their parents' room, then okay, like, I can kind of see that, but you never know, right? So, I, I mean, you also can c- kind of like see their links on their YouTube channel and you see whether, like, what are the ways they are monetizing. So if they're only monetizing by monetizing via sponsorship and not like affiliate marketing or whatever, you probably know that they are not making money from YouTube at this point in time. Okay, so it's based on, I see I see what you mean, like what revenue streams are open so that you can uh, identify what it is that they're doing. Okay, that checks out. And then uh, also, I will, I will say too, like just coming from like the podcast listener space, depending on like, I'm not going to like, I don't want to name names, uh, but sometimes I know who their sponsors are and I know, well, if this company is their sponsor, that means they're only making a certain amount of money versus like, you don't really break into like, I don't know, the, the higher echelon until you start selling a mattress or something like that. Uh, so Jonathan, I'm going to move on. Uh, I want to move on to our next question. This is the one that I was like foreshadowing uh, for our listeners because uh, this is well, it's it's Shopify country. It's also a dropshipping nation. So maybe I should call it Dropify country. I kind of like that. I actually like that a lot. In fact, it's probably a company called Dropify. Anyways, so I know that you don't work with dropshippers, and I think I know why. So I actually do want to guess this. 
um, first. Here's my guess. I think it has to do with the business model in of itself, where it's too early on in a business's development. Um, by the time that they get the revenue that you expect in order to have a good working relationship, they should probably have moved on to a different fulfillment method. Like they have their own warehouses or they're doing white labeling or something along those lines. So, uh, so, but you, you obviously it's your, it's yours to, to answer. So why not do you, why do you not work with dropshippers? Yeah. So I mean, dropshippers in general, they, that it's like, how do you ensure that the customer is happy? Right. So even if I come in and, and help you scale your advertising and generate you hundreds, hundred K months or whatever, right? Like if you can't fulfill that, like a Facebook is going to kill you off their platform and then the ad account is going to get banned and then your entire reputation and business is going to go down the drain. So like personally, I, I feel like if you have generated some cash, you definitely should try to transition over to branded e-commerce in some way and just provide a better experience uh, for your customers. Because if I, if I see how I see it, it's like if Facebook is like at the mercy of them, that can kill your business like uh, tomorrow, then it's not really a business. And so it's like very difficult mm-hmm. to work with other businesses like that because I'm in the B2B space where I'm selling to uh, companies. So like we want to work with our clients long-term. And so generally people who are like serious have branded e-commerce, very good fulfillment, three-day shipping, two-day shipping types. Uh, and so scaling is never an issue. Okay. I, uh, so would you uh, do our, our drop shipping, uh, our dropifiers a, a favor here and lay out maybe like an idea roadmap to get to the point where they could be ready to work with you? Like what fulfillment mesh that should, could it, could it, should it, would it be replaced by um, how the, how they get to the, the revenue to that point? Because I'm, you know, they, they might, they might need some help to get to your point so they can uh, use your help. If you're doing direct response properly and already getting sales means you, you know something about marketing already. So you should generally can get to like 500 to $1,000 per day in spend. And then by the time you're spending around 30 K a month, which means you're probably doing like, you know, a decent amount of revenue, right? Then plow that profit uh, back into uh, buying inventory, buying stock in, in bulk, right? And it's sending that over. If you're uh, manufacturing from China, for example, then sh- shipping that over mm-hmm. to a US warehouse and stuff and just parking it there so that at least that if customers order, the, their product comes in two or three days. And so that improves uh, not only your shipping time, but actually your costs. Purely because like there's less refunds, you know, uh, uh, there's less time being spent servicing each customer. Because if there are more complaints on like the dropshipping side, there are long shipping times, right? Then it's more load on your team as well. So I think that a lot of dropshippers, they have the mindset or mentality that they are too stubborn to change the business model in a sense. Uh, and because it's quick cash, right? It's easy cash flow. So mm-hmm. uh, by being uncomfortable, is something that they're not really interested in because it took them a lot of time to get here. Yeah, so I don't know um, if you're listening out there, if you're a dropshipper, you should, probably should try to transition to branded e-commerce and build something uh, long-term for yourself as well. Because once you transition to over to that model, like all your nightmares go away. There's no more ad account bans, et cetera, et cetera. And so that you can really build a business that mm-hmm. you can sell uh, in the future as well. And at, at this point, uh, I've, I've talked to quite a few um, uh, dropshippers and you know everybody that I get to interview are successful because we don't, well, so far we <laughs> yeah. haven't talked to any, fa- like we don't talk to any failures. I'm, I'm like the least successful person out of all the dropshippers because I'm like, I'm in it now too. Like I'm trying my, to make my own way. And every last one of them, at least as far as to my recollection, um, which I, you know, give an eight out of 10, 
it, they they don't stick to drop shipping for good. They they can they will come back to it if they maybe need to build capital, but they will move on to uh, other business models, or they'll just like get out of drop shipping altogether, and they'll get into advertising, or they'll start their own agency of some sort, or or maybe I don't know even transition out of e-commerce altogether. That I don't know about. I haven't really talked to anybody quite like that yet, but uh, but you never know. Um, so so this is all really important, and and I think it's it, it's just important for us to just remember what problems drop shipping solve but then what problems it doesn't solve. And it does solve, I think, a lot of the early uh, issues of just like, how do I actually like start a business? Because like what you were saying at the beginning of your story, you have a bunch of sunglasses that, that couldn't be sold. So acquiring the product first has been proven to be a s- successful model, but it comes with its own cost. So there's there's risks either way. But I, I for one, definitely find, uh, find it encouraging to know that like this model has, is like, the first stage of an evolution. Now, if you like the product, you're drop shipping, get it yourself, maybe even get to the point where you're manufacturing it yourself afterwards. Yep, that's correct. So uh, drop shipping, then white label, then uh, manufacture your own products. But you don't even have to do that because there are people making like eight figures with white label stuff. So like, even though uh, just ensure your marketing is good and you still can get there. You know, it's not really that difficult. Like everybody, if you're manufacturing from China, like they have all the molds already. So you can just take whatever they have, like don't have to put an additional capex into your investment and then just white label everything. Like you still can get to eight figures. So I don't really think there's an excuse nowadays considering the uh, e-com infrastructure is so built out nowadays. And even Chinese suppliers are very savvy, right? They, they know what you want nowadays. You don't even have to explain to them. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you um, by any chance uh, uh, come across any like job shipping services that are uh, US based or like a North American based? Because I'm looking at a couple and I know Spocket is one of them. And I was just wondering if uh, if any one of them has kind of like crossed your radar that you thought were good. Uh, okay, so I, I haven't uh, encountered services specifically that provide that. But I do know, I work with clients who have done that before. So I'm not sure if it's a secret or what, but like, mm-hmm. so there's this guy who sells like uh, aluminum gate signs, something like that. And so what he does is he drop ships from the US to the US. So there are people selling on Etsy and so these Etsy manufacturers, they are real manufacturers Etsy, okay. at factories. And then they basically, uh, my client goes to them and says, that, okay, I'm going to bring you the sales. Can you just give me the product and ship them out for me? Like since you're already on Etsy and stuff, right? So because Etsy, you can't control the traffic and the distribution. So then you just port that over to Shopify and you got basically two-day shipping times uh, without the CapEx investment and stuff. So like, uh, mm-hmm. just be creative, I guess, you know, there's so many ways to, to make money nowadays and uh, shouldn't be an issue for you if you're trying to find and fulfill from the US as well. Okay, that's fair. Although, you know, I've, I've talked to some other people who have um, given Etsy uh, good credit, and it didn't occur to me that Etsy, that some of the people on Etsy are like manufacturers. My my stereotypical view of it uh, up until this point was that Etsy is all like, you know, crafts crafts people and artisans who uh, make things in small batch, but can can start to, uh, to move them, which is also true. But to, to know that there's also manufacturers on there too is actually really helpful. Um, so I'm going to switch gears uh, to an article you wrote on uh, Medium.com. Great, great article, by the way, full of uh, uh, full of info. So uh, there's one part of it that I that I picked out that I want to ask about uh, about how to easily scale to seven figures. So the part that sticks out is that it's it's about retargeting customers and uh, you know using advertising to recognize recognizing where in the funnel customers stopped. So then that way you can retarget them at that point. So for instance, and this is the example that you guys use where. Uh, if a customer goes to like the product page of a blue bag and then, but they don't convert, they don't buy. 
where you could retarget that customer with images of the blue bag along with testimonials of other people who have purchased it uh, just to keep that pro particular product uh, on their mind. I'd like to ask if there is a balance between retargeting the customer, but also going too far where the customer starts to feel like the product is like hunting them or like, okay, hang on a second. Now this product wants me to buy it. What's going on here? You know, I don't feel that there's um, too much retargeting because as long as you keep showing people uh, a different angle or like how you write the copy is different, um, people won't feel like they're spam. You know, they just feel like the brand is trying to advertise and push me to the bottom of the funnel in different ways and different angles. So obviously, if you keep smashing the same creative to the same audience and the frequency is like 14, 15, right? Then like the audience, the audience is going to be very, very frustrated as well. And they're going to start downvoting your ads and stuff. Yeah, but I think that as long as you just hit them with many variations of copy and creative, like there shouldn't be fatigue and they won't be annoyed in a sense. Okay, for, for a tangible uh, result, I'm thinking like maybe like once a day, they'll, they'll see one or, or a couple of times a week, they'll see it. Yes, that's correct. So I normally put uh, like for example one ad and then uh, five variations of different copy and just put it into a dynamic creative and just run it all the way. Yeah. So that mm -hmm. uh, the customer just sees multiple variations. I, I think what I find amazing about it is how like uh, comprehensive it is where depending on where the customer shows up on the funnel, there is a strategy to retarget the customer at that point. Um, would, would you be willing to just like expand on this for a second? Just let us know like what are some of the other points to retarget customers? Sure. So uh, how I normally do it for bottom and middle of funnel is like, uh, you can you can literally take your FAQ section, right? And then all the questions there, and then you just write one different copy for, for it. So for example, um, if you're selling like a, a camera and then there's like one section in FAQ that talks about batteries and stuff, you literally take take that section and put it as one ad copy. And there you go, you got one different angle already. Uh, another thing I like to do as well is like uh, limiting beliefs. So for example, um, if you're buying like a, an eye mask and this eye mask promises you that you can sleep better at night, right? Then uh, you can address the limiting beliefs in the ad copy as well. Yeah. So uh, in terms of like creativity, there's like, it's like endless opportunities that you can retarget uh, based on that. And so um, I feel that there's no such thing uh, as fatigue and like uh, the customer shouldn't feel like you keep spamming them if you know how to constantly provide value in different ways. I appreciate your your, your philosophy on that because I noticed that you do have a, a pattern of um, of addressing, I, I guess, different beliefs in the e-commerce space. Uh, one of the ones that I actually wanted to get to, which will be uh, a few questions from now, is also that uh, you, know, you can always position a product um, and that it, rather than try to look for the winning product, you can look for the winning qualities in a product and just position it correctly. That's correct. So... Uh... How we see it is like, if I give the example, if I'm selling acne cream, right? And every other competitor in the market is selling acne cream to women and like puberty, teenage women, teenage girls, right? So everybody's smashing that market. But if you just come in with a different angle and instead of saying, hey, are you suffering uh, from acne, right? It's like, uh, do you have sensitive skin, right? So you're essentially carving a different angle in the market and it's not saturated at all because everybody's smashing that same pain point, but you just come in at a different angle, same price point, same product, uh, and you, are, you can sell. So that's, that's to me, that's how I see uh, like the, the concept of the winning product. I don't really believe in that. I feel like they're just uh, different markets, different angles, and like everybody is normally going to smash one angle. So you just come in at a different angle and you are literally competing with nobody. Well, no, well I just using your, your acne cream example there for a second. So I think for some people, they will just consider the, the acne itself and they just want to get rid of the acne. But then other people who have sensitive skin for them, acne is a symptom of that. And what they're really looking to do is to cure the sensitive, the skin sensitivity. So you're basically like you're, it's the same, it's the same product, but 
by addressing the issue in two different ways, you communicate the solution to more people. Yes, that's correct. So like, if you think about it from customer uh, touchpoint perspective, right? Everybody is coming to um, everything that the customer sees, right? All of the acne cream brands are t- t- uh, talking to you this way. But if you see something that's different, then you generally click through that and buy that, right? Because they're, t- they're speaking to you different. It's not uh, a very jaded messaging as well. Yeah, and, and so uh, by the way, I, I saw the um, in, in this video on your YouTube I looked at, uh, I saw the product that you were pointing out, um, which is like this breakfast making device. I, I, I just cracked up when I saw this because that the breakfast layout was exactly the breakfast that I, I make when I have the time to make like my full <laughs> my full on breakfast. The only the only difference is that in the oven where there's toast, I have hash browns in there. And what what struck me is that you you use the term uh, unique selling point, which you've you've basically covered here. And I have to say, I can't remember. We've got to have talked about it. Like I know for sure over the course of this uh, of this series, we've got to have talked about it. But I just think it's important to convey why the unique selling point is uh, is such a big deal because if you can figure out how to different how to position products differently you know you open up new pathways to convert it so what did you find a unique selling point for that breakfast maker i didn't i only have so much time i didn't get to watch the whole video so uh for that one specifically it was like um advertising to mothers and so basically uh the the, the angle was hey there's no time for you to prepare meals for your kids mm-hmm. so this this product is that so like can you see right like the the different the angle that i'm using is not even relevant to the product itself it's like it's it's a very arbitrary uh, angle. So you, you can like craft your USPs based on that alone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have a very strong USP, like uh, in the market, right, you are a very fresh concept. So people like that. So fresh concept com- converts well as well. So uh, I guess just be creative. Uh, yeah, it's my advice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about that too, just for a second there. I, I, I mean, I, I think for me, angling it specifically towards kids is like good, but there was a coffee pot in there and I don't know how early they started serving coffee to kids, but like a busy family where you have a lot of kids and, and the, and the dad is busy and the mom is busy. And so to have a machine that's just like kind of like cooking breakfast for the whole family all together, uh, I can, I can, I can see that. So yeah, it, it is about creativity. So here's the next thing I want to ask about uh, is a case study. It's a $1 million case study it happened in 57 days and uh, you and your agency, you are very transparent. Uh, you, you know, you, you, thank you. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. Well, thank you. You know, thank you for sharing the information. Um, but I gotta, I gotta get you to tell the story for our audience of like what, what, what went on in this case study. You can do the cliff notes version of it. You can expand on it. However you want to address it, but we definitely want to hear the story. Yeah, sure. It's a product that is on Facebook alone, pure video ads, like viral video, video ads strategy. Uh, all the videos uh literally created um in the house like that there's no fancy camera equipment and stuff it's literally like use your iphone point out shoot uh so i think during that month it spent around 250k in ad spend uh and it was a bit crazy because i think we were top 40 advertiser in the u.s at one point so we also touched like 10 percent of the u.s woman population uh and then when you start scaling yeah, up that's to pretty that point, good. like that's pretty big facebook gives you uh priority access i feel like every single ad right uh, when we launch, it's like within like minutes or so, they just approve. So I, I, uh, I'm pretty sure of this, even though I'm a Facebook partner, but like there are multiple levels to the Facebook partner where it's like, if you are, uh, if they see you're spending a lot of money, your advertising account gets like a premium access, also cheaper ads. So the more you scale, right, the better audiences they give. And so the data on the pixel will be better as well, purely because they know that this guy is, has the will- uh, willingness to spend more money with us. So they're going to give us a premium audience. 
So I think uh, we scaled from anywhere from like two two k per day to 40, 40 plus k per day, if I'm not wrong, um, within fifty seven mm-hmm. days. Yeah. So th- within that time period, uh, did a million. So the the thing that stopped that scale, uh, is the exact same same thing about uh, fulfillment as well. So we scaled them, scaled the client too hard, and then the fulfillment broke, and then a lot of complaints came in. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, you can see how important fulfillment is as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I, uh, I actually didn't realize that there is like the uh, the Facebook partnership status. So do you remember like what uh, uh, what amount of uh, of ad spend that you had to have uh, provided for Facebook in order to uh, to earn that? And then I think this is really good for people to learn about because you know one of the key things to business is like you know don't just take your first set of winnings and run uh, it's not gambling it's to reinvest into it and so i think this is an interesting way to incentivize reinvestment to reach that partnership status so i i would just love to know like you know what you what, what you guys get out of it sure and how you got there uh so if i'm not wrong to, to enter you need to spend at least three hundred fifty thousand usd uh, on the platform then okay, they will like yeah, that's, uh, send uh, a, that's a journey <laughs> yeah, yeah then they'll yeah. send an invite so it's, it's i don't even think you're like official something like that yeah then after you send invite okay then you accept etc etc in terms of perks right you actually don't get uh a lot of tangible support they just say okay you have resources and stuff but uh for my account for example every single ad, ad account that's attached to me i get like priority uh, approval access so like if my ads get rejected it's very very easy and then i can just uh phone support is very fast as well so i guess that's, that's the benefit of it uh then when i think you hit uh, 2.5 mil for example uh, 2.5 mil in ad spend uh, then you also get like another premium access level uh, and stuff. Yeah. So you don't really get a specific rep. And I'll just, I'll just say this about Facebook. is that they, even though they issue you a, a agency rep, those reps, right, have no idea what they're doing. So if you are, <laughs> if you run ads, right, uh, don't really listen to the, the reps that Facebook gives you. Just uh, do what you do and just stay in your lane. Yeah. Uh, in terms of perks, I, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all learning the, uh, the, the hard way uh, that, um, Facebook advertising is uh, is is a crucial tool, but uh, Facebook itself has it likes to uh, you know it's, it's not it's not always helpful. My my account got restricted by the way. I didn't even run an ad. I was just like partner <laughs> on somebody else who ran an ad, and his ad yeah. sent people to a landing page instead of the product. Oh, sorry, it sent it to the product page instead of the landing page, and so he got restricted. Then I got restricted because I was an accessory to it. It's like oh come on, Facebook. I didn't even realize until like two months later. But yeah, it's like those. It's like you're talking about those nightmares of drop shipping. Eventually, you move on to uh, branded e-commerce, and a lot of those nightmares go away. Make way to new more lucrative nightmares i should say yeah yeah so an- another selling point of yours is it's scaling your product in in any market conditions and and the word that stuck out to me there was any so what are like what are some market conditions that have put this to the test or maybe some ones where you had a, a lot of uh i mean i guess like more difficulty than average but we're still able to still scale a product sure so i had a client in the cosmetic niche so um they sell like a physical product plus an info product uh on the back end as well so it's like a two, I'll say two-headed monster, right? So uh, it's competitive purely because cost per clicks, right? Can go anywhere from five to ten dollars USD. Like cost per click, it's not even like a conversion and stuff. So like if you're in the entire market condition, uh, you just have to make sure that your funnel is just stronger than anybody else. So what what I mean by that is, for example, if I sell a seventy dollar product, uh, we both sell seventy dollar products, but then I have like uh, my backend is much stronger than yours, right? My LTV and AOV. I can spend like much more than you. Mm-hmm. So in any market condition, it's basically you set yourself up for success purely because you can just spend more than the than your competitors. So when you go out there and like put down a two three thousand dollar per day uh, campaign, like you're not even scared at all. Like you couldn't care less. You know that's the mentality that I have. 
because it's like, hey, my funnel is stronger than you. Um, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of how, how I see it. And so um, when you have, um, how do I say this, traffic advantage, um, video ads, right? It, they're good, they're viral. And then you have an AOV advantage, right? You're basically unstoppable. So in any market condition, right, you still win. Yeah, that's that's really important to keep in mind is that the money that we can spend is not equal to the money that other people can spend if there is more value behind behind that money. So if my back end is weak and your back end is strong, then even though we're spending the same amount of money, your money gets a lot more mileage out of it than mine does. Like mine gets converted into bronze and yours gets converted into silver. So that's that's really that's really important to keep in mind too. And and I and I do notice that like we do, you know, we, we share a lot of information sources and I think that there is this balance between like, you know, don't spend your whole life making like the perfect website. Uh, there are essentials and there are some critical things that have to be in place in order to um, get the money, uh, to, in order to be able to effectively spend the money on ads. But also at some point, people still have to take action. Uh, what would you say are just kind of like some of the essentials that uh, on the back end side, kind of like what I was saying earlier about the front end side. So now the same question about the back end side uh, for people to get started and to like know that their money, while it might not be like, you know, triple platinum, at least they're, the money that they're spending on ads is going to uh, start putting them into a positive direction. Okay. So uh, for the back end, I guess the first thing you need to do is first just increase your prices. I know this is very like, counterintuitive to people, but like um, if you charge more for your product, right, you have higher perceived value. That's number one. Uh, number mm-hmm. two is also you can hire more people to provide better customer support and you actually can like, pay people to like run your business. So people don't understand that. They think like cheaper is better, but cheaper is not better. Like cheaper is going to hurt your customer in the long run. That's number one. Then number mm-hmm. two is um understanding, okay, if I'm selling product number one, that's my best seller. Uh, what else can I complement with product number one so that I increase my AOV over time, right? So uh, you want to put it into the, the how do I say this? Your purchase, your main purchase funnel sequence so that at least that every single customer that goes through your funnel one time, you're, you're trying to extract as much LTV as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Then obviously at the back end as well, there's email marketing with Clearview and stuff. Uh, yeah, but I, a lot of people know that, right? So um, you have this full out like acquisition machine. And so you know at every stage of the funnel, it's like, okay, this guy's going to buy this and then this and then this first. And then afterwards, I'm going to sell them, uh, cross-sell other things as well. So um, I would say that normally a lot of times from the data that I, that I see that like 80% of the revenues come from 20% of the products. So generally, if you mm-hmm. have, per se, winning products or like best-selling products, they'll probably only be like, be like three to five products that generate most of your revenue and just uh, keep selling those products to, to people. Um, I guess the last thing I also can suggest to you, if you are in a consumable niche as well, uh, if you can sell uh, high-ticket or recurring offers, that is like uh, you are going to change the game for yourself. Probably because like uh, recurring is like uh, you know consistent revenue and stuff so that you understand uh, there's consistent cash flow coming in. And so you can reinvest your ads uh, very, very aggressively. And then you also, if you're selling high ticket, right, then your acquisition cost can just be uh, sky high and like you couldn't care less and still be profitable. Um, yeah, so hopefully that uh, puts people in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And, and there's one thing that you pointed out too um, about some of the data you collected and how it, um, if, if, if I, it, it's, it's a continuation of the 80-20 rule, which is very uh, important to business and Basically, in any business, you know, eighty percent of it comes from twenty percent of it. Um, so, I, I also wanted to ask about, I guess, the the overall data ag- aggregation. This is a question that I like to ask agencies uh, because when you're working with multiple clients, you have multiple data streams, and so you have this pool of data that you can then use to help each other out. So, um, can you can you expand on that for us? Like, what's an example of some of the data you've collected in aggregate that has been beneficial to ideally all of the clients, but you know. 
Sometimes it helps most, if not everybody. Uh, so I'm g- guessing you're asking about like industry trends and what you see across data, right? That's a great, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, understood. So, uh, basically, number one, ad accounts like they are all they're all broken. Like they all have, uh, if they report like a two x ROAS, they're actually like three point five x on Shopify. So if you think your your ad account is the issue, it's actually not. It's just Facebook. So don't worry too much, uh, about them. Mm. Second thing is like, um. If you have a winner, sorry, if you have a best-selling product, right, you know for a fact that this product is generating 70% of the revenue, I would suggest you to just cut everything else. Like literally just remove everything else from the store, just sell those products. And so you might be thinking, okay, this uh, reduces selection for my customer and stuff. So, but that's actually the wrong way to go because actually most of your revenue is being driven by one thing. So focus on the mm-hmm. one thing and just try to scale that as much as possible and scale uh, very, very aggressively. Um, yeah, then I would say that the... The clients that are most successful generally are the ones that can produce like uh, consistent content uh, over time, right? So they're not just stuck on one creative all the time. And so if they are constantly re- refreshing creatives, uh, they have an advantage on that, the traffic, uh, sorry, yeah, on the traffic as well, because they can just get uh, cheaper clicks and cheaper traffic at the same time. And so the audiences are not fatigued as well. Um, yeah, so I would say in terms of characteristics of like the successful e-commerce brands, those are the ones. Oh yeah, and lastly, um, the AOV mm-hmm. uh, needs to be at least the same or like the highest in the market so that you have that uh, advantage on the AOV side so you can spend as much as you want, right? You don't want to be the cheapest in the market. You want to be at least like consistent with um, everyone else or uh, just as better so that if you you can get to the starting line, uh, just as uh, you get, yeah, you basically can get to the starting line just like everybody else. And so you can compete on your marketing uh, from there as well. well so, so one of those uh, that, that stuck out to me is when we eliminate the products that, uh, aren't aren't generating revenue and just focus on the on the on the one or two that are. I, I remember I was having a conversation uh, with one of my buddies about this, and he was asking me, and I would love to ask you this question now: is like customer perception when they come to a website and they don't see too many products, or they really only see the one? Um, they might f- could they have they found that to be off putting? I th- I think at your level, you've probably seen the data to either uh, refute or. Uh, or, or support this. So um, for customer perception, is there any issue with seeing one or two products on a store that might imply there's more to to choose from? Not necessarily. Uh, so for example, the million and 57 days case study, like that's um, in dropshipping terms, that's a one product store, but it's branded mm-hmm. e-com. So I wouldn't say there is an issue there uh, because everything looks professional, right? Everything's just like one nice landing page. Um, you know, there's, there's about us page, there's FAQ page, everything looks... Uh, there's no no scammy elements to it, mm-hmm. so I don't think that will be the issue. Um, okay, yeah, I just wanted to check in on that one. Okay, uh, well, Jonathan, uh, I know we don't have you for for too much longer, um, so this has been jam packed with really good value. So, uh, so so thank you for all of that. But in the, in the last little time that I have, I just want us to kind of like whew, just breathe, uh, uh, you know, uh, chill out for a few minutes because uh, I wanted to ask you like, oh, well, I, I got two questions for you. Uh, not counting the the wrap up question, uh, the one of them is about your your photography because one of the things I know that like just from like some of the Instagram posts that I've read is that photography and editing are very interesting because you capture reality, but then it's it's change it changes and it's conveyed differently once it becomes an imagery. So can you speak to like your philosophy on that or like what did it, what is that you learned about the difference between what we see when we look at an image that's been edited versus like what is you know what is the reality of it. Like photo editing is very, very powerful. Mm. And like nowadays, the tools like Room and Photoshop, like they can craft any image you want. So like don't believe too much of what you see nowadays because everything's edited. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> like I, I, I take like I take a camera on uh how do I say this? I go to the mountain and then the mountain is actually like a lake and then the lake is just like dry and empty. But then when I took the photo, it's, it looks picture perfect. So I would say social media is quite um take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. So, so, so you saw a body like in, in the image. It's a there's a body of water, but in reality, that the lake was dried up. Yeah, it was just like one small droplet, and I just lowered my camera, and then just, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about, and um, it's not it's not it's not what I would say. It's a it's a humorous subject, and I'm glad I I just wanted to let you know that I wanted to ask it before we started recording because uh, because listeners mindset. And um, and well being is important. If we don't have that, it doesn't matter if we succeed or not. So you you had a you had an, you had an episode where your anxiety uh, overcame you, and uh, you just you, you kind of like check just like took a sabbatical from life for a little while. So I'd, I'd like you to tell that story because I want our listeners to understand that these things happen, and you know what were the warning signs and what you did about it, and uh, you know how how you're feeling today, you know working in the field that you're working on. Basically, I've because I run a lot, a lot of ads, and so like decision making, and uh, when you're spending money on a client credit card, like the the game has changed, right? So to me, that was like very, very stressful. Mm. And up to a certain point, I actually got like an anxiety breakdown. Um, even though like I've, I've obviously I've, I've employees and stuff to to help manage the business and stuff, but um, if you're a business owner and like you're an entrepreneur, like everything's on you, you know. So mm. in terms of mental health, you you definitely need to take care of yourself. Otherwise, your own mind and your own body will break. Um, yeah, so get enough sleep. Um, and the I took a sabbatical, like like a break from everything, uh, just to like release like, and just to like tell myself like, hey, it's okay. Like you've accomplished uh, a lot and like just sit back for a while, like reflect on what you've done and then just move on to the next thing and actually do something mm-hmm. that you actually like, right? Even though um, on the outside, people may see it's all glamorous and stuff, but uh, business is hard, right? Entrepreneurship is hard. And it's like, it takes a toll on your body, but more importantly, like your mental health and the relationships as well. So just, um, yeah, take care of yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself there. But people come to me and, and they are like like 30 or, or like 35 even. And it's like, I want I want so hard to be successful. Like, can you please help me and stuff? And so I think mm-hmm. uh, people are just not patient enough with themselves. And uh, if you just chip at it like day by day, seriously, like you will get there eventually. It's just that, uh, how bad do you want it? And how patient are you? And I think that's, a, that's an important observation just about the pressure of, um, uh, in addition to being uh, one's own boss, Although I will say that I've I've been thinking about this a little bit lately, and and I think in one way, shape, or form, while it might not be like a boss in business, there is always somebody that we have to answer to. So even if I'm uh, you know running my own business and I'm an entrepreneur, I still have to answer to my customers because they're the ones that are paying me. So in that sense, the customers fill the role of the boss, anyways. Um, it's it's pretty difficult, I would say, to like. To, to generate revenue without having someone somewhere to answer to. It's, I, 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 I couldn't really think, I, I guess like, I don't know, maybe investing or something like that. If you become an investor, then you become the person that other people have yeah, to answer yeah. to. So uh, other than that, you know, uh, we all, we all fill that role of, of the, of the, of the manager or the boss position as well as the, uh, as, as the employee, the worker position. So, so, so the philosophy there is like, this is just like the beginnings of my, of my thought on it, but to ask you a tangible question, is in what I would imagine is, and I don't see me running an agency, but you never know. I, I would imagine the first thing that I would do is to just work with one client and nurture that relationship as best I can, learn as much as I can from it, 
and then reach and then find a second client once I have a very clear idea of how this works. Uh, I feel like if I were to suddenly take on like a bunch of clients all at once, then I would open myself up to making like a bunch of mistakes. And actually, I should correct myself because when I was doing freelance editing, that's kind of how I went. I did focus on just getting one client first and just kind of like sticking to it. So at that point, when your agency was like starting up, how did you how long was it before you had like your second client? Uh, it took me like really long. I remember like two to three months to get my first client. And then the second one mm -hmm. came pretty quick, like probably like uh, within the next three weeks. So within the next three weeks. Yeah. yeah. But I definitely know that like, people would definitely quit after the first three months. So uh, yeah, it was like very, very tough. But yeah, like I said, just chip, chip away at anything, right? You 100% become successful if you are committed. Yeah. Um, well, well, you got a great business. Uh, you're your, your success is open for, for all to see, uh, which is by design. So, um, so congratulations to that. Um, and, and I think that's everything that we're going to do today. Uh, this has been a fantastic episode and I really want to thank you for your time. And I know we want to get you on out of here because it is late there, uh, over on in, in Singapore. <laughs> so the last question, uh, before we, uh, we let you go is if you have any other parting words of wisdom, just words you'd like to share. Um, I feel like it, you, you basically nailed that with the uh, the chip away at it. But in case there's anything else you want to add on to it, feel free. And then uh, let our listeners and potential customers know uh, how to get engaged with you and get engaged with your content. Okay. Uh, so I guess last piece of advice, it's really cringy or whatever you want to call it, but uh, like try to release attachment uh, from risk and money. So like, like risk is all in your brain. Like it's like something in your brain. You can't really feel it. So risk is like arbitrary. Then money is just, you can, you can make money back. You know, it's just a number. So if, if you're young and like uh, a hustler type, I just go try out that. I literally just try everything. And so like one thing will stick if you work hard at anything. So once you hit that one thing, then just try to scale that as much as possible and uh, maximize your utility there. Yeah. So when you make decisions, don't, don't, uh, don't chase the money. Just uh, take care of the customer. Uh, yeah. And release attachment from risk and money. Um, yeah. Okay, how, how do you find me? You can just go to my, <laughs> you can check out my YouTube channel. You can search Jonathan Pemp, Pemp is spelled P-M-P. -P, or you can go to my website, which is oxg-media.com. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Uh, well, listeners, uh, as always, thank you for your time and your attention. If, you, if you're new to the show, I always recommend checking out our earliest episodes. While they are early, we're jam-packed with value from, from episode one to episode, whichever one this is. Frankly, I've lost count. You guys have been great. Uh, Jonathan, you've been great too. And so everybody take care and we'll check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might've found this show on many number of platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>